Well, we're going to continue our lesson in Nehemiah. And last week, we concluded our lesson about the gates, all the gates that were surrounding them and how each gate symbolizes a, a point in every believer's life. Now, today, we're going to move on to chapter 4 in Nehemiah, so you would turn there with me. And as I mentioned in the past three chapters, Nehemiah had a burden to rebuild those. He had a burden when he was not living there. He knew to come back and rebuild the walls and the gates. Even though he never actually lived there, his ancestors lived there, and he was wanting to go back. He felt a burden from God to go back and start the process. Now, in the beginning of that, we see God's favor upon him, you know, between the king giving him everything he needs, letting him go, supplying him with materials, supplying him with a good passage. Everything he needed to accomplish it, God provided at the beginning. And he arrives, he gets the people all excited to do this great thing for God, even though it seemed impossible to do. He looked around and he gathered the people and they were all involved and they said, let's do it. And they started rebuilding the wall. And now we come to chapter four. We'll start with verse one. It says, when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. You can be sure that whenever you want to accomplish something for God, you want to step out in faith for God, or as a church we start pressing into God, what's going to happen? You are going to face opposition. You're going to face things in your life that come up to oppose what you want to do. A very practical issue is how many have started to pray? And then during your prayer time, all of a sudden, all these thousand things come in your mind. I have to go and do this. I have to go to the store. I have to buy this. I have to paint. All this while you're trying to pray. And if you're, now when I pray, I can't, I can't kneel. Or I can't get on my knees because when I do, what happens? I fall asleep. And I can't get back up. So I have to walk. You know, you get a certain age and the knees give out. It's hard to get up. But when you pray, when you, I'm walking and praying because I've got to keep my mind focused. And when we do that, opposition is going to come up. Not only was it a difficult job that they were doing, we knew they were going to face opposition from the enemy. Now, rebuilding the walls and the gates would qualify as hard work because God didn't just snap his fingers and rebuild the wall, right? We talked about that earlier. God uses people. It took hard work from the people. And prayer and fasting and trusting God for things is hard work. And as soon as they started out, so did the opposition. Now, notice the opposition didn't start until they started. He didn't really care about what was happening. This guy, Sambalat, didn't care about the Jews as long as things were going his way. But when they started working, started changing things, is when the opposition came. The people at that time, they were living, they were very poor, they had no protection, the Jews were weak and dependent. As long as that was fine, as long as that was going on, the Jews, they were, you know, just subservient. Sambalat was fine. But now when they rebuild the wall and the gates, this is going to change Sambalat's position, his wealth, and his influence. When we set out to honor God and bring glory to God, we are in effect challenging what the enemy already has. We are challenging his position. We are challenging what he's doing. And what's going to happen is the enemy is going to rise up against you when you step out and do something for God. Warren Wiersbe says this, opposition is not only an evidence that God is blessing, but it is also an opportunity for us to grow. If you face opposition, you can believe that you're on the right path. 
A lot of times we think when, when trouble comes and opposition comes that we're maybe on the wrong path. But I think more often than not, the opposition from the enemy comes when you're doing things that are right. How many watch football anymore? Not so much. Steelers are out of it, so we're not watching anymore. Fairweather fans. Who does the defensive team go after? The guy with the ball, right? If you don't have the ball, the opposition doesn't care. But the guy who has the ball is one everyone's going after. When we're doing something for God, the enemy is going to come after you. If you're not doing anything for God, he's going to leave you alone. Opposition can also give us the chance to grow. Opposition brings out the best in people if we let it. If someone says to you, and you're starting a job, and they say, you'll never be able to accomplish that, what does that do? It does one of two things. Either you say, well, you're right, I can't do it, or it makes you want to accomplish it just to show them that you can do it, right? That's exactly what God wants us to do. He wants us to be able to double down on our belief that God is involved in this, and we are going to work even harder to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Now, we're attempting to rebuild from last year. And you can take it to the bank that we're going to face opposition in this new year. How many of I don't watch the news anymore. Just bums me out, gets me aggravated. But the few things I do watch doesn't appear to be good things for Christians. How many agree with that position? And I asked the kids this morning, what is, what is your faith going to be like if it now becomes hard to serve Christ? What if it's going to cost you something to serve? What if it's going to cost you to even go to church? How are we going to react? Are we going to double down and we're going to say we're going anyways? Or are we going to stand back and say, you know what, it's too hard for me? Nehemiah 4.1 continues and says, Sambalat ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of all his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side said, what are they building? If even a fox can climb on it, he would break down the wall of stones. So what's the first thing that happens is ridicule. He gets made fun of. Ridicule is always the first attack. David faced it with the giant. The giant came out and ridiculed him, right? In 1 Samuel 17, the giant says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and beasts of the field. Jesus faced it, Luke 22, 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. Luke 23, the people stood watching and even the rulers sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Old Testament heroes also faced it. Hebrews eleven thirty six. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. The first line of attack is going to be people making fun of you, ridiculing you, putting you down. If you are on social media and you read some of the things written today, 
Christians are the object of ridicule. We're the ones that don't seem to understand how the word is. We're the ones who are being put down by those outside. And it seems to be getting worse. I remember when I was, before I became a Christian, I used to watch Phil Donahue. How many remember Phil Donahue when he was on the air? A few of you old timers remember him. Makes me feel good, right, Phil? So I remember watching Phil Donahue, and if you know Phil Donahue, Phil Donahue's no friend of believers. And he used to have on guests that if they were Christians, he would ridicule them. If they were not Christians, he would agree with them in, in his mocking of Christians. And I remember being on the other side of the TV at that time, agreeing with him, agreeing with his mocking, agreeing with his, his way he was putting on people. But when I, when I got saved, I realized that the Christians are the ones who have the right answer. That's why the world is attacking us. And you know what that means? As believers, we have to get a thick skin. We have to realize that no matter what we attempt and how noble it might sound, it will almost always get ridiculed by those who are opposing us. And we have to suck it up. We have to take whatever they say. Because our work for the Lord does not go unnoticed. Psalm 2, verse 1, this helps me when I see the things going on around us. Psalm 2, verse 1, why do the nations rage? Why do the people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from this enemy. That's what the world's saying about getting rid of believers. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at him. You know, and sometimes it appears that we're not making any ground. We take one step forward, two steps back. But if we continue to work, ignore what people are saying or what they're putting online, God is going to win. Our job is to be faithful in doing what God has called us to do. So what was Nehemiah's response to being ridiculed in verse 4? He prayed, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as a plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So a couple things. He takes this to God. He vents to God. How many have ever vented to God? God, I need you to pour your wrath upon this situation. Well, that's what he's doing. He's saying, God, uh, wipe them out. But then he kind of sat back and said, okay, whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. I'm going to let you handle it. However that is, I'm going to let you handle it. Right now, what we hear all around us can make you upset. But what does God say? Give it to God. Let God handle it. It would be easy for Nehemiah to stop the work and go to face off with those guys doing the ridiculing. Right? Okay, let's stop this. Let's debate this. Let's argue about it. But he didn't. He said, God, you handle it. Because he knew if he would take time off of building it and then go and debate these guys, they would have already won because they weren't rebuilding. So he kept his nose to the grindstone, kept doing what he's going to do, and let God handle it. It's easy to get caught on all these rabbit trails. I was telling the kids today, in, in, when you talk to people about Christ, it's easy to get drawn away by all these little 
tangent issues. You know, what about abortion? And what about this? And what about that? It's easy to get drawn away and talk about those things and get your mind off of Christ. And I said, our job is to bring them back to Christ. Don't, don't debate the issue. Don't talk about it. Say, what does Jesus say? What, is, what has Jesus done for you? And a lot of times, instead of fighting against what the enemy's doing, we have to give it to God and keep working the way we're supposed to be working, which is exactly what God is, is doing through Nehemiah. And rather than fight the world against you know, what happened last year, we're moving forward. We're going to fast, we're going to pray, and we're going to keep moving forward. We're not going to live in 2020. We're going to trust God to bring us out of that and bring us to where he wants us to be. God will do the protecting, and God will allow us to, see, to succeed if we are faithful, fast, pray, and work. Verse 6 says, So we rebuilt the wall to all of it, all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. What's the best way to stop the ridicule? By doing it, by succeeding, by accomplishing what they said you couldn't accomplish. Keep doing what God's called you to do. Keep living righteously. Keep praying. Keep studying. Keep wanting to grow and mature. Keep being involved in ministry. Keep rebuilding what the enemy took from us last year. So Nehemiah's prayed. He's given it to God. He's starting to work again. And at this point, all the opposition ends. Right? Well, not exactly. Verse 7 says, But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. There's a reason that God calls Christians to work together. We're a family. We're units. We are one body. Because what happens is the world is fragmented. Different kinds of opposition, different thoughts and beliefs. But what happens is they gel themselves together against the family of God, against the believers. How many have heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Well, there's people out there that don't agree on anything. But they do agree against believers. So we believers, we can't stand alone. We can't work autonomously. We have to be together as a family of believers, not necessarily all together every day, but when we come together, there's a strength in unity, the strength in, in numbers. There's anointing and power in groups that doesn't occur when you're by yourself. And so what we want to do is we want to encourage each other, band together as believers as one unit, and push against what the enemy wants to do. What was Nehemiah's response to this threat? Verse 9, but we prayed to God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. He went on the defense. He just didn't stand there and pray. He knew he had to work. He prayed and then he responded accordingly. Nehemiah was not blind to the opposition. He knew what was out there. He knew the threat. He knew the danger. He didn't ignore it. He had to act accordingly. The, the opposition was real. It wasn't make-believe, it was real. He didn't stop word, working, but he took the necessary precautions against it. 
How many know there's bad people in the world, right? And bad people can come into church. We want them to come into church. We want them to come and hear the gospel. We want them to know Christ. But what we don't want is them to walk around freely throughout the building, right? The, whole, the entire downstairs of the church is, is our children's ministry. Well, about a year ago, we installed security doors and security passage to get through those doors. You've got to get buzzed in by somebody or you have to have a key. You can't just walk in and walk downstairs. Why did we do that? Because we knew there's bad people in the world. We didn't stop doing children's ministry. We took the precautions that needed to make our kids' ministry more secure. When the virus hit, we closed down for a couple of months out of precaution. We cleaned, we sanitized, we did what we needed to do. But now we have to continue what God has called us to do. Some precautions are still in place, but we are meeting together because that's what God's word tells us to do. How many of you drive a car? How many of you wear a seatbelt when you drive a car? Come on, everybody. How many of you carry car insurance? All right. You carry those as precautions, but you don't stop driving. You drive, but you take precautions. Nehemiah 4.10 says, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Sometimes it seems that the task at hand is too big to finish. You start, and there's just no end in sight. Right now, in our youth room, which is upstairs, if you've not been up there, I suggest you don't go up there, unless you have a tetanus shot. Because all the decorations that we had throughout the church are now laying in the youth room upstairs. Because we have to now organize it and put it, can you turn this off back down a little bit? We have to organize the storage area and then put it away. But if you go up there and just look at the stuff, it is so much stuff and so little space, it's almost like, oh, I quit. But you have to go in and take it one bite at a time. These guys were looking at the wall and the rubble and everything, and they were seeing no end in sight. This is never going to get finished. It's not enough stuff. It's impossible. And if we listen to those around us who ridicule us and tell us we can't do it, what's going to happen? We're going to believe it. All those guys outside that were mocking and ridiculing the Jews, they kept doing it and doing it. And finally, the, the guys on the wall were thinking, maybe they're right. If we take our eyes off the Lord and look only at the job that God calls us to, it's easy to get discouraged. Because, here's a spoiler alert, whatever God calls you to do is going to be impossible for you to do by yourself. You're going to need God to help you through it. Remember what the Jews were, or the, the bad guys were saying about them in verse 2. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they were? So what they did, they attacked their ability. They're feeble. You can't do it yourself. You are not able to do it physically by yourself. Then they attacked the scope of the work. Look how big this job is. Look at all that rubble. You'll never accomplish it. Even if you were the best craftsman in the world, you're never going to build this wall. So they hit them emotionally, hit them visually, 
And without God behind them, they were right. It was an impossible job. Discouragement, I believe, is the biggest weapon that the enemy uses. You ever get discouraged about anything? More preachers quit because of discouragement than any other reason. People quit doing ministry. They quit marriages. They quit jobs because they are discouraged about something. If the devil can get you discouraged with what's happening, if you begin to think there's no progress going on, if you see nothing changing right away, it's going to discourage you. And what was happening is the wall wasn't getting as well or as fast as they thought it would. And they were becoming discouraged and they were listening to what the people were telling them. And not only does the enemy bring discouragement into the picture, he then ups the ante. Not only are you discouraged, now he's going to pour fear in your life. Verse 11. Also our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. Sounds similar to what's happening today. Was there a threat to kill the workers? Yes. Was that threat real? Yes. Was it a possibility? Absolutely. And even the Jews were beginning to give in to the fear of being killed. Verse 12. Then the Jews who lived near them and came them and told them ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Now, the phrase ten times, if you look it up, it's an idiom that means many times. It wasn't ten per se. It was like when Jesus says forgive them 70 times seven. It's not like you have to forgive them 490 times and then 491 you're good. It means many times. Just keep what they're saying. They, they told us over and over and over and over again. How many times do you have to hear a lie before you begin to believe that it's true? There's a sentence that says, a lie told once remains a lie, but told a thousand times becomes the truth. Anybody know who said that? Or who it is attributed to? It was attributed to the Nazis during World War II. What lies are the enemy's filling, is the enemy filling your mind with? It's one thing to have the enemy introduce fear into the world. But when fear comes into God's people, what happens? Faith goes out the back door. Matthew 8, 25. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us or we are going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? One of the things the enemy is going to attack the church with is beginning is fear. I mentioned to the teens this morning, I think I said this earlier, what happens when it's going to cost you to be a Christian? What happens when it's going to cost you maybe going to jail if you carry a Bible or going to jail if you go to church or if they fine you for going to church? What are we going to do? And it's easy to let fear come in. Even the world acknowledges the effects of fear. Henry David Thoreau says, nothing is so much to be feared as fear. We know the quote by FDR who changed it up a little bit. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Fear will paralyze you. Fear is contagious. 
Fearful people discourage others and then help the enemy to win. If you're afraid, you're going to make someone else afraid. And then they're going to make somebody else afraid. It's contagious. The Jews themselves had become fearful and fear was spreading among their brothers. The threat to them was real. It was acknowledged it was there. But fear was causing them to stop what God was doing. What was Nehemiah's response to the spreading fear? Verse 13 says, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. So we went from being on defense to go on offense. Instead of giving in to the fear, he went out to meet it head on. He wasn't going to attack. He wasn't going to be the one doing the aggressing. But if they were coming at him, they were prepared. What was he doing? He was stationing people at the most visible points on the wall. Points on the wall where everybody, all the ones who were threatening to attack, everyone can see these guys stationed on the wall. Putting them in places the enemy could plainly see and that the enemy would know that they were prepared to fight if necessary. He armed entire families and had them build near their own homes. When a family comes together against an opposing enemy, what happens? The family gels and is able to defeat the enemy. Someone knocks on your door in the middle of the night and you're arguing with your wife and they're threatening to break in. What happens? Man, you guys become one unit against that person coming in the door. Everything, every little skirmish that's going on in God's family stops at the point where opposition comes at you. And Nehemiah had the families together. They were putting them together, putting a visible line of defense out there, basically showing the enemy, we're not going to give up, and we're going to fight if necessary. Families are there to encourage each other and are able to protect one another. God is greater than our fear. If your fear of ridicule, of people, or the enemy is keeping you from doing what God called you to do, then Nehemiah has the answer to that. Verse 13. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Nehemiah rightly assessed the situation. He acknowledged the reality of it. Didn't put his head in the sand. He didn't just walk back thinking, ah, they're nothing. He knew the threat was real. But he reminded them that even though this threat is real, you can't live in fear of it because God is there to protect you. If they continued and they worked and they were prepared to fight the enemy, Nehemiah's words, the Lord who is great and awesome, will bring the victory over the fear. If fear is overwhelming you, we need to remind ourselves of the greatness of God. If we walk by faith and not by sight, we will win. If you walk by sight and not by faith, you will fail. But if we look at the situation through the eyes of faith, knowing, that, knowing the greatness of God, acknowledging the reality of the opposition, knowing that God is able to overcome it, you're going to win. Verse 15 says, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, 
We all return to the wall, each to his own work. Those guys rebuilding the wall didn't just pray and do nothing. They prayed and went back to work. And went back to where God called them to be. Why? Because just praying about it and doing nothing is not what God's word says, right? James 2.17 says, In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by an action, is dead. They didn't go fight the opposition. They kept doing what God called them to do. They prayed and they acted upon their trust in God. And they didn't do it in secret. They made sure everyone knew they were prepared for battle. When people see believers actually acting out the faith, not letting fear surround them and drown them, when the world sees that, that we're not cowering in fear, God will frustrate the plans of the opposition. But we know our fight never ends on this side of heaven. How many agree with that? There's always going to be opposition, always going to be struggles, always going to be things that are getting in our way. But we always need to be ready for it. Verse 16 says, From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armors. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders who wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. We can't stop God's work for every little skirmish that comes up. Jesus talks about the little foxes ruining things. Nothing stops the work of God more than little skirmishes that happen in the body of Christ. Little skirmishes that may come from us from the outside. All those things are going to happen, but we can't let those interfere with what we are going to do. Now, if we spiritualize this, we have half the people doing the physical labor, while the other half were praying for the ones doing the work. Not everyone is called physically to do something, right? Not everyone is called to physically build a wall, but everyone is called to pray. Everyone is called to pray for those who are doing the work. When Moses was out in the field fighting, his hands had to be held up, right? Aaron and Hur had to hold his hands up. Once his hands came down, they were losing the battle. It took people lifting him up physically, which we do now in prayer, for them to succeed. I wrote down here, all that you see happening on Sundays here and most other churches, only succeeds because people are doing the ministry that's required and they're praying for the ministry to succeed. The ones carrying material are carrying swords and the ones building are also carrying swords. It's not enough just to build. We have to make sure that what we already built doesn't get destroyed. The enemy wants to take away from you what God's already done for you. It's one thing to start something, but it's more important of how you finish. Luke 14, 28 says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will you not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. 
Now, Jesus is talking about discipleship there, but I think that's everything in our life. If we want to finish well with God, then we have to continue the work. It always requires prayer, always requires warfare, spiritual warfare, and work. Verse 19, he goes on and says, And I said, the officials, the, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, and our God will fight for us. The wall obviously was so big that you're not going to be able to see everybody working on the wall. And you might not see what's happening to your neighbor down the next block. And you may feel like you're alone doing the work. But Nehemiah wanted everyone on the, on the wall to know that they're not alone. Because once that trumpet sounded, everyone came running to help. When you feel like, like you're alone in your walk with God, realize that you're not alone. We got together with Shirley's family this week. And as she said, she got a lot of cards and stuff from all of you. That was the trumpet sounding. All of us are doing our thing throughout the week. We're praying. But as soon as one of the believers is hurting, what happens? Everyone surrounds them. The Bible says when one hurts, we all hurt. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. Being a part of a family enables the family to react in the same way. The trumpet blows, man, we are all there to lift them up and encourage them. Whenever you're doing something for God, you feel like you're alone, let it be known. Let it be known that you need encouragement. And there are people that will gladly jump in and encourage you and pray for you. And I guarantee once you do that, others will come to your side. Nehemiah 4.21. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when it meant when he went for water. I'm talking about nighttime here. Enemy does his best work at night. When you're alone, in your beds, after a long, successful day, when you're laying down thinking about the day, what are you thinking about? The enemy is quick to put in thoughts in your mind. You're not going to make it. This is ridiculous. You can't do this. Always be on the guard for the wiles of the enemy. The Bible says we can't control the thoughts that we have, but you can control what, when they come, what you do with them. The Bible says take every thought captive. Jesus was tempted. That was a thought. You're going to get tempted. You're going to get things put in your mind. What do you do with that thought? You can either dismiss it, take it captive and dismiss it, or you can entertain it. You can sit there and, and think about it and mull over it and may, maybe begin to agree with it. And sometimes, even after a successful day, things have been going great. End of the day, your guard's down. Hey, everything went well. God was with me throughout the whole day. And all of a sudden, your guard is down. And the enemy throws something up in front of you, either in your mind or on TV or whatever it is. Hey, I'm strong enough. It was a great day. I think I'm going to do that today. I'm going to watch this tonight. Or I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to 
enemy wants more, nothing more than to beat you on your most successful day. When Nehemiah told the guys, look, you need to have someone stationed day and night. Always, no matter where you go, if you're going to get water, make sure you have your weapon with you. No matter what we're doing, we need to be prepared to fend off any and all attacks, whatever time of the day it's going to be. The enemy is not foolish. He knows exactly what your weak points are. He knows where you're most likely to be susceptible, and he's going to be there to attack that position. We need to be ready for that attack. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, and I'll close with this. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God's work is work. To accomplish what God wants to accomplish involves work on all of our parts. Right now, we're concentrating on prayer and fasting because that's the power behind the work. We can work all day long, but if we're not praying, not much is gonna happen. But when you pray and you trust God and you believe, and then you work, great things can happen. Would you stand as we close this morning? There's gonna be struggles this year. I'm not saying that to discourage you. I'm saying that to prepare you. So that whatever happens, and you're, you're hearing all kinds of goofy things in the news about what's gonna happen next week, you know. But you know what? I'm, we're not fearful. We're not fearful. We're not going to let this fear overwhelm us. We're going to let God do what he's doing, and we're going to continue to do what God has called us to. Maybe this is the time of great revival. When chaos breaks out in the world, people want to know about God. Be on your guard. Be ready. The Bible says always be ready to give an answer to those who ask of the hope you have within. In other words, someone comes up to you in all this chaos and says they want to know about Jesus. Are you ready to tell them? Are you ready to talk to them about it? I think people's hearts are going to be open this time, and we have to be ready to be able to answer them, not just push them away and not give them an answer. We have to be ready with what God tells us to do. Would you bow your heads this morning? Hallelujah. Before we pray, I want to always make this opportunity. Maybe you're here with us very first time this morning, or maybe you've been a part of our church for a long time. And you've heard a lot of sermons about Jesus, but you're not really sure that you know him. You know about him, you've heard him, but you really haven't believed, as the Bible says, in your heart. The Bible says we're all sinners. Every one of us, from the day we're able to understand, we sin. We transgress God's laws. We do things that upset God. We sin against God. And the Bible says because we do that, the wages of those sins is death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. We're all going to physically die. But we all have the opportunity to not spiritually die. In other words, we don't have an opportunity to have a relationship with God. And the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. In other words, God is able to look down and, and if you ask him with your heart, to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you, believing that Jesus took your punishment for you. He took it instead of you. If you believe that in your heart, the Bible says confess it with your mouth, then you are saved. The Bible says Jesus stands at the door of your heart right now and he knocks. He wants in. 
but he's not going to kick the door down. He wants you to make the choice. If you're here this morning, he's knocking on your heart. He wants you to come into a relationship with him. He wants you to be spiritually alive. He wants to restore your relationship with God. Because up until that point, we have no relationship with God. If you feel God tugging on your heart, it's because the Bible says God's making you feel that. The Bible says nobody comes to God unless God draws him. So if he's drawing you, if you feel that tug in your heart, it's because God is just tugging you, wanting you to make the choice. He's not going to make it for you, but he wants you to make it. If that's you and you want to know Christ in a real way, you want to have a relationship with God, by asking him to forgive you of your sins, I want you to raise your hand right now. I'm going to pray with you. Hallelujah. I'm going to believe that all of us here have a relationship with Christ. So I'm going to pray that God continues to fill each one of us. Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you that we can right now be in your presence. We can hear your word of truth and we can apply it to our life. And we thank you, Lord, that we're able to gather together as a body of believers to encourage and strengthen one another. And we thank you, Lord, that your word says perfect love casts out any fear we have in our life. We know you love us, Lord. We know your hand is upon us. So we will not let fear rule over us. And we know that opposition is going to come whenever we step out and do something in faith for God, whether it's in our family, in our church, in our work. Whatever we set out to accomplish for for God's glory, we know we're going to face opposition for that. And I pray that you would strengthen each one of us to be able to overcome that. We will not let any fear or any worry or any concern take over and stop us from doing this great thing you've called us to do. I pray your blessings upon each person here. Allow us to leave knowing that we've been changed, knowing that the Spirit of God is in us and allowing us to step out in faith to to continue to work for the glory of God. And I pray that many souls will come to know you, Jesus, that all of our efforts, all the things that we're doing for your glory, I pray you are pleased with and that you will honor our work and touch lives with the gospel of Christ. Now, Lord, I commit each person here to you. You take us, you make us, and allow us to be your living sacrifices as we leave. And we do it all in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a tremendous day.